1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Annabelle Kim, the author of Unbecoming Language, Anti-Identitarian French Feminist Fictions, and the book was published by the Ohio State University Press in 2018. Hi there, Annabelle. Hi there, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on French literature?
0: Sure. Um, the short answer is that it, my, my older sister,
1: hmm.
0: and not because she had a particular investment in France or anything, but because she just happened to take French when she got to junior high and high school. And uh, when I came along six years later after her, I decided that I needed to do exactly the same things that she did and take French as well. But in my case i really ended up latching onto the language and i think it's partly because i actually i think it's entirely because it was a language that was liberating
1: hmm.
0: well you know my parents are korean immigrants uh, i grew up speaking korean as my first language and as soon as i started school i lost it because i wanted to uh i wanted to assimilate so badly that i decided mm-hmm. that not in a on a on a in a conscious way or in a willed way to um, only become fluent in English. And so that led to a kind of um, really fraught linguistic situation for me where here I was, a bad, a bad daughter, <laughs> having betrayed my mother tongue and, and in order to function in this evil stepmother tongue, uh, English that, that I really wanted to have love me. And uh, uh, so I was a very angsty kid and then comes across French and. It was, a, I mean, it was a whole new world. French was a language that didn't have any emotional or psychological baggage attached to it. Huh. And uh, I think I just kind of grasped onto French as a lifeline and decided that I would follow it wherever it took me, which was a French major um, in college and eventually the PhD in French.
1: What about feminism? How does feminism and French feminism in particular enter into the picture? How did it for you?
0: Well, you know, I think well, I was always obstinately frustrated by any obstacles I would encounter in in terms of realizing desires I had. Until I reached graduate school, I don't think I had enough awareness to be able to chalk that up to, well, to be very blunt about it, patriarchy. Mm. Uh, when I was an um, undergrad, I was a French and art history double major at a co-ed school. But, you know, those are two very feminized majors. So for at least as far as the educational aspect of, 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 um, of my undergraduate experience was concerned, it was as if I went to an all-women's all college. So it was only upon starting graduate school and entering a classroom where... I felt for the first time very strongly well, what the classroom dynamic becomes when you have men <laughs> in the room. Mm-hmm. And yes, yes, hashtag not all men. But that was a real awakening for me. And you know, here I I, I think that Toro Moy says it best when she, in her essay on, um, on the theory boy, and I think that we've all <laughs> been there either as said theory boy or having to share the space with those theory boys. And uh, I thought, you know, what, what is this? And uh, I realized it was gender. I mean, it, I, I feel kind of stupid in terms of how late in life I had my feminist awakening, but it happened in, in, in graduate school. And so after I had the vocabulary for that to, to match onto to this kind of visceral experience, um, I thought, well, you know, I'm doing the PhD in French. I guess I should read, read French feminism. So that, that's how I kind of wandered into the waters of feminism, and especially in its French iterations.
1: So this book, Annabelle, Unbecoming Language, focuses on the work of three writers, Nathalie Sarot, Monique Vitigue, and Anne Gareta. Can you tell us a little bit about how you chose them and why you put them together?
0: I guess it all started with preparing for my oral exams. And I just kind of randomly uh, assembled a, a list on post-war experimental fictions. And Faroude I put on there, you know, because she's canonical. Viteague, when I was, I think, starting to kind of really read as part of my feminist awakening, I thought, yeah, like, Vitig has to be on there. Mm-hmm. And Angareta, um, there was a a fellow graduate student who had taken classes with her at the Université de Rennes 2 when she was doing her master's in France. Mm. And it said, oh, you know, she's a really interesting experimental writer, I and mean, that would be a good person for your world's list. And I just kind of was reading in the way that uh, graduate students read for their orals, just sort of binging and, and trying to hold on to as much as I could. But I thought, oh, you know, there's a there's a funny kind of a resonance uh, between that I'm that I'm picking up on between Sarot and Garita. When hmm. it came time to you know propose some sort of dissertation subject, so I thought, well, you know, I shall write about Sarot and Garita and use French feminist theory. And I was particularly enamored of uh, Lucie Rigaud's work to. Make sense of what they are doing uh, because they are women writers, hmm. and uh, it, it, basically, it didn't work at all. <laughs> it was only after I had sort of forced my way through writing about a hundred pages of this project that was dead, you know, that was should never have been begun, that my dissertation advisor said, sat me down and said, "Look, this isn't working. the The premise of the dissertation is wrong." And um, essentially, the the outcome of that conversation was that um, uh, I was missing the linchpin, which was Monique Fatigue. Vitigues was a bridge between Sarot and Garetha, where Vitique wrote because of Sarot, and Garetha writes, or is driven to write, in large part because of Vitigues' work as well. Mm-hmm. But what happened was, and I think this is part of the reason why I maybe tried to avoid putting Vitigues into the picture, was that I couldn't have Vitique and Irigaray at the same time. Right. The work of folks like Irigaray Christeva, it was anathema to her, and well, obviously, I ended up choosing fatigue because it's what made sense, historically speaking, in terms of the actual relationships and intellectual and biographical that connected these authors to each other. Mm-hmm. And once Vitigue was there and Irigaray was out, um, through the process of writing the dissertation, I too ended up having to let go of difference, despite having been so seduced by it when I had my feminist awakening.
1: I'm so glad you've sort of trace that story like your struggles with trying to fit two of them together and then bringing in a third and then having to get rid of loose like that that kind of expresses the project in certain ways that that we're going to talk about a little bit more Mm -hmm. and maybe the way we can kind of move into that is to explain or to I'll ask you to explain this notion that appears in the title of the book and is of course there throughout the project this idea of an anti-identitarian French feminism and French feminist fiction. So can you kind of give us a sense of this term and what it means to you, how you're using it? I think that uh, a lot
0: of it, I mean, the language isn't Sarot's, but the idea is very much um, Sarot's. And there's a kind of fantastic expression that gets quoted often um, that Sahot said about how when she writes, she's essentially no one. Um, You know, she's not a man, she's not a woman, she's neither dog nor cat. When she writes, she just kind of stops being herself or the person that she is in a social sense, in the relational sense, to instead just kind of be the subjectivity in language is, is the best way I have of summarizing the the, the ways in which um, Sao talks about her experience of, of, of language and of writing. And I thought, well, what is that if not a kind of relinquishing of the identity that holds us together? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think that that kind of experience that all of these writers enact in their writing of um, shedding off their identity clothes, to borrow a, a phrase by Robin Weekman, that is essentially turning their backs on our usual kind of everyday experience of identity to have some sort of non-identitarian experience of being.
1: I think too, Annabelle, this is a, a way for me to ask you about the relationship between the French feminism you're exploring in this project mm-hmm. and the one with which listeners might be more familiar or, or have certain kinds of associations. Could you talk a little bit about that relationship between the anti identitarian feminism that you're pursuing in this project and the feminism that people tend to associate with feminism when we call it French? You know, the French feminism,
0: which is, you know, everyone like, we'll give the caveats, yes, it's like an artificial construct. Sieg and Kristeva are very different, heterogeneous, you know, it's, it, it, it's a kind of awkward thing to, to group them together. But you know, so is French theory. French theory is also an awkward grouping. It's like Lacan <laughs> and Deleuze very little to do with each other and yet they get kind of thrown about in the same sort of uh, grouping. But I think what these kinds of capitalized handles uh, point to is a way in which French culture and, and French thought have become synonymous with a kind of thinking of difference or difference as their sort of key concept that differentiates them from, I don't know, more down-to-earth angles. I don't know if that's right <laughs> or not, but. So, you know, I started off very much within the French feminist camp. I was really kind of like blown away by the, the force of Aureu and Cixu's writing. I was completely convinced And when I read about French feminism, that's all the material that I found to confirm my sense of how amazing and and kind of revolutionary French feminism was and is. But I never came across materialist anti-difference French feminism except in a kind of footnote of you know, the MLF that happened for, uh, you know, over the course of a few years and then dissipated because of and conflicts. And you know there's never an intellectual and theoretical sort of analog um, that corresponded to the sorts of literary and intellectual output that was available for French feminism. And it was when I took a step back and took the, my three authors together that I realized, you know, that they were it, mm-hmm. that their, the history of their of their writing constituted a a literary history of anti-difference French feminism that's not an idea that is relegated to these very kind of exciting years of the 1970s and the MLF, but it's something that goes all the way back to the 1930s when Nathalie Sarut began writing Mm -hmm. that predates uh, Simone de Beauvoir, who is kind of, um, I think, cited as the sort of godmother or the originary sort of figure of modern French feminism. And what I'm saying in not so many words is it's not Beauvoir, as important as she is. Mm-hmm. It's actually Saoud. And this is completely perverse because Saoud you know, she will roll in her grave if she knew I was using her <laughs> writing like this. You know, she was a feminist in her in her in her in her politics in her, in her life as a citizen, but not as a writer. But I I see, and I think Vitique also sees this. But you know, no, Sarah's writing mm-hmm. that is this kind of feminist bomb that happens early on in the 20th century, and that kind of passes underneath the surface. But Vitique unearths it, explodes it, and then lets the pieces fall where they may.
1: Well, in this spirit of resistance, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, Annabelle, about what this book isn't doing. Um, So one of the points you make in the introduction is that this is a book that deals with women who wrote, but not the woman writer. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, Obviously, the category of the woman writer has done a lot for feminist literary studies. It's the category associated with like the dinocentrism of uh, Gilbert and Gubar, Mad Woman of the Attic, mm. the originary moment in the American Academy of Feminist Literary Studies. The woman writer has done a lot for us. I think, uh, and here by us, I mean first and foremost feminist literary critics and scholars, but sure. also all of literary yeah. scholarship too, because you know, literature, literary studies needs feminism. But I think that it's limited by its investment in a very kind of fixed identity that works to flatten the differences that exist between all these writers who are women. Mm-hmm. The reason I didn't want to write, make this book about Saron Vitigue and Garita as women writers is because the woman writer is, is, is limited in so far as it is invested in its own identity. So how could I use a figure of thought that is invested in the very thing that this collective corpus works to undo?
1: You also make the point, Annabelle, and this kind of came up a couple of moments ago, That this is not a book about reading these authors through this thing called French theory. It's more about reading these authors as theoretical in and of themselves, if I understand correctly. And I I guess I want to ask you about that difference, too, in terms of your project here.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that in literary studies, there is a kind of model in which, you know, you have your your authors, your literary authors that you will be working with, and then you have your theorists that you read your authors through or with. And, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a model that works, obviously, because a lot of scholarship produced in literary studies adopts that model. But what it ends up doing, in my view, is that um, it seeds so much of the kind of, conceptual and theoretical capital to the so-called theorists and doesn't really allow the authors who are the whole reason you're producing the scholarship to be considered concept producers in the same way. You know, I, I came at it from the conviction that literature is theory, and I think that French theory itself sort sort of gets that because of how literary it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what makes French theory different than the kinds of theory that gets produced in a in a native Anglophone context. Uh, but you know, mm-hmm. folks like Derrida and Deleuze, um, Foucault, like they they're writerly, and so you know these these theorists they get to be. Both theorists that get cited over and over again uh, whose ideas become you know field changing and foundational and they get to be writerly too, where their style mm-hmm. instead of working against them works for them and is a, is, is, is only con- kind of confirms their brilliance and then on the other hand you have writers like Sarut, Piti, Gareta who are you know stylicians to the core they have a very powerful style and I think that they do create concepts, but they don't get to be considered to be as weighty, uh, theoretically speaking, as these other names. And I felt that to be very unfair. So I guess it was a way of sort of leveling the conceptual playing field uh, for me to, to choose not to read Saro and Gaeta through some of the uh, figures in French theory who would make sense.
1: I guess the last sort of broad question I'd like to ask Annabelle before we get into talking about the individual chapters is this issue of how you as an author and as a thinker in this project are negotiating the relationship between the textual and the close readings that you're interested in here. The situatedness of these authors, um, you know, were born at different times and engaging with different literary communities and politics. And yeah, the biographical, which is, of course, intertwined with both of those things.
0: When I was in graduate school, I was so enamored of Roland Barthes. I read everything by Bach, and I was like, this is my man, this is my jam." Yeah, nothing but the text the (laughs) author said, you know, the human element doesn't matter. Like, you know, it's the text, like, in this kind of eternal sort of trans-historical, just like time-abolishing experience in the now with (laughs) a text. And, you know, that got me very excited about reading, but I think it was... Marrying historian and having to answer questions that were rooted in history that really got me thinking about the fact that oh, actually everything exists in a history mm-hmm. uh, or has a history, and you know, I had I, I'd heard of the oft cited uh, J- Jamesonian dictum: "Always historicize." Um, but it didn't really become fleshed out for me until uh, I was having you know regular conversations with a historian mm-hmm. and when I started to think about what kind of Relation there was between history and these textual productions, I started to think. Well, you know, actually, like, this is of course Sahot is a product of her time. Of course, fatigue is also a product of her time and informed by what's ha- happening. And Garreta, and if only because of the fact that they're they're reading different things than would be possible at any other moment. I always privileged the close readings in terms of the kinds of, I guess, conceptual takeaways that mm-hmm. I want people, readers, to get from what these authors' works can do. But I want to restore or help restore to this really rich uh, tradition of anti deference French feminist thought and action, its history. Mm-hmm. And that meant having to account for things like the fact that Sarah needed her husband's signature on her contract with Gallimard until she was like in her 60s. Wow. The gap between her legal status and the, and the logistical things that she had to do to be a writer and the status that she enjoyed as this kind of giant of, of modernist French literature. Mm-hmm. But I see... Your question is also asking the question of what is the relation between the kind of histoire that you know, novels and literature constitute and histoire with a, with, a, with a big H? What's the relationship between history and story? And I think, and I will have to draw upon my high school chemistry class um, experience to (laughs) to, uh, account for this, but I think it's like they're both different states of the same substance. Hmm. The, the same element can exist as a solid, a gas, a liquid, etc. But that they exist in a state of equilibrium, which is, I guess, according to my high school chemistry classes, where that point when, I don't know, the temperature, like the conditions are just right, where you're going constantly back and forth between different
1: states. I mean, this might be completely yeah. wrong. I,
0: I, it's been like 20 years since I took it. A- <laughs>
1: It works for me. I think it's helpful, actually. I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about that, the way you're working historically in this book, is because it comes together so beautifully. We go from 1900 all the way to Geretta, who's still with us. And that there is a history embedded in just that arrangement and the way of thinking about them, but that at each turn, in each of these three chapters, and then again in the fourth where you consider all three authors, you are covering the history of a career, but then also zooming in on particular texts that illuminate the anti-identitarian French feminism that you're interested in pursuing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Sarot in that first chapter that places her within this, this trio <laughs> you know, pushing off from this idea of thinking about story and history, you know, how her life, her historical placement, and we can't get into all of the work that you cover of hers in this chapter, but what it is that connects her to this anti-identitarian French feminist fiction, why is she the the anchor, the first author here?
0: I don't That I can explain or account for why she is the first. Obviously, Salud has her own literary influences. She read and was familiar with Proust, with Dostoevsky, with Kafka. Mm. She had an enormous kind of literary erudition. I think that biography has a lot to do with why she ended up writing the sorts of things she ended up writing. I think she was truly a person who was ahead of her time. The parts of her biography that I was able to learn about, kind of expressed as a portrait of Salud's personality, was that she was a stubborn person, she was independent, you know, she um, became a practicing lawyer, she studied abroad, she didn't want to be constrained to the domestic sphere by any means. And I should say that it will be very interesting for me to get a much better sense of her bio- biography than what I had at the time of writing of the book, because Anne Jefferson mm. is publishing Sarah's biography. I think it's coming out in August in in France with Flammarion, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, so I think that you know Sarah had to find a exutoire. What's the word in English? A release or some sort mm. of outlet. Some sort of outlet. Yeah and that that outlet was writing. And I think, you know, everywhere she would have turned, she would have bumped up across the constraints that her particular identity imposed on her. And in her case, you know, the fact that she was the daughter of Russian Jewish emigres, um, the fact that she was, she had to go into hiding during World War II because she was Jewish, the fact that she was debarred because of her Jewishness. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that she felt very much the costliness of being pegged as a certain kind of identity. Mm-hmm. The weight of having to to account for being an identity really informed her writing practice and made her perhaps drawn to a particular kind of writing in which that could no longer be the case.
1: You explore Sahot's kind of complicated relationship to the new novel, that she's part of this movement, but also that her categorization obscures other things about her as a writer and as a, a kind of feminist. Can you say a little bit more about that?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess in the case of the new novel, and um, I'm not sure if our listeners will all be familiar with the new novel. Mm-hmm. The new novel is essentially according to some people at least, the last avant-garde literary movement in France. And it was a a post-war sort of thing where... You know, in in the wake of a world that had been completely kind of reshaped, some writers said, you know, we can't write novels the way we used to write. We need a new realism, and the Balzacian realism, with its finally a lot of characters, its plots, it, that can't be the case for a 20th century novel anymore. So mm-hmm. these writers set to essentially raise all that to the ground and do something else. And they... By and large, stayed with the very um, non psychological literature that is perhaps most famously kind of represented by Alain Robbe who was a, who was referred to as the Pope of the new novel, um, which kind mm-hmm. of gives you a sense of the kind of almost mystical qualities that this group had in the literary sort of cultural imaginary at the time. But in Alain Rebbe, for instance, he spends like pages describing in painstaking detail a tomato slice in one of his novels. Or he Mm -hmm. describes things in terms of like their angles and how they're situated uh, with regards to each other. Some people love the new novel. I frankly think it's super boring. (laughs) It's just kind of like, give me my juicy plots and characters that I can identify with. But that's precisely what they didn't want to do. So Sarot got grouped with them as well because, you know, she uh, did share some traits with them. She also abolished characters in her novels. And, you know, she was always very interested in the psyche Mm -hmm. And the kind of grouping of the new novel makes you lose, I think, the importance and the significance, for instance, of her commitment to plumbing the psyche in the ways that the other new novelists didn't. And I think it also flattens the generational difference because the new novelists were a lot younger than she was um, by several decades in certain cases. The new novel was essentially, at the end of the day, a literary brand. It helped its members get on the map, it helps them sell books, it helps them become writers important enough for people to write books about. But in the end, everyone always disavowed to a certain extent, uh, their association with the new novel, except for maybe Alain Robcrier, who kind of created it.
1: And when it comes to the language and the writing in Sahot's work, you know, the figures that they appear in the the title of that first chapter focused on her, this notion of indeterminacy and a universe without contours. Can you give us an example of either in a specific text or moment where I guess I'm just sort of looking a little bit for the texture of what that feels like or reads like in the work? Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, in the first chapter, I look at some of her tropisme or tropisms, which are her earliest pieces of writing uh, that she began in the early 1930s to write. And there are these short little vignettes, you know, they seem completely modest and quiet and unassuming, but, but in each of these short little vignettes, like you always get the impression there's so much happening under the surface. And you know, mm-hmm. I think that's that makes sense given that the tropisms were conceptualized by Saud as being essentially the what she called sous conversation. So just happening Right under the surface of conversation, right under under the surface of that kind of language. And tropisms she borrowed from the biological phenomena of, say, like heliotropism to uh, refer to these involuntary movements and reactions that people, in her case, have to mm. gestures, to a phrase pronounced a certain way, to these really kind of minuscule or seemingly banal kind of triggers and all the things that these sorts of kinds of language, because they're, they're always language, and I would say that the gestural becomes a kind of language too. What Sarah does in the tropisms is that she lets you think as a reader that you understand what's going on, and then in the very next sentence, she completely undoes your conclusion, your, your informed conclusion. And then she just does that over and over and over again. Mm. You essentially become so dizzy a, a, as a reader that you can't firmly claim to know anything about anything anymore.
1: So in the second chapter, it's a chapter that's focused on Vity, but you're already engaging both authors and kind of moving forward in this chain. So... One of the things that I found really interesting about this chapter is the way that you contrast the politics in Wittig's work and life from Saoet's. So yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this thread that you're pursuing throughout the whole project, which is the the way in which the literary and the political, the literary is political, and how in this second chapter, you're already kind of talking about both authors by considering that difference between Vitigue and Sarot politically.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, Sarot was a well-to-do bourgeois woman, and that's long and short of it. She lived in the 16th arrondissement in a very posh apartment. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time, like, the events of 68 were happening, all the kinds of uprisings of, of the Mouvement de Libération des Femmes, you know she would have been by that point in her late sixties and early seventies you know she wasn't she she didn't want to take to the streets, but I think that also you know she never really did that when she was younger either. <laughs> As far as Mm. I can tell, she was just very content to take positions on things. Like, she Mm. was one of the authors that signed off on the Manifeste des 121, so like the Manifesto of 101 Mm -hmm. authors who signed in support of um, Algerian um, sovereignty and self determination. And that got her stripped of funding to go to a a trip somewhere by the French government. Mm. But yeah, that's all still fairly tranquil. As far as mm. political action looks like, she, she led a fairly quiet life. She was, she had her rhythms and she stuck to them. But Vitique was the opposite. I mean, she mm-hmm. was right up there with uh, on the front lines with the May sixty eight, with the student um, worker uprisings against De Gaulle's government. She was a hardcore Marxist. You know, she's in fact she translated Herbert Marcuse's One Dimensional Man to French, and she was one of the founding figures, really, of the Mouvement de Libération des Femmes after May sixty eight turned out to be quite chauvinist. And you know, she was getting arrested. She was doing demonstrations, like. She wasn't afraid to be in the fray. But what I find extraordinary in terms of the relationship between Sarot's kind of quiet politics or her quiet leftism and Wittig's very kind of revolutionary militantism is that she traces it to to Sarot's writing. Mm. And there's an extraordinary kind of moment in. Um, one of Wittig's letters to Sarot that are available in the Departement des des Manuscrits des Archives at the BNF, where Wittig writes to Sarot and says that if everyone were like Sarot, the revolution would have already happened. (sighs) But I think what Wittig is picking up on and on attributing to Sarot that kind of revolutionary status, it's nothing about Sarot's actual politics, really, but it's about what Sarot's relationship to language enables people to think. I think I think what's really useful in Vitig's interpretation and taking up of Saot is that she picks up on the ways that Sarot's writing is precisely working against the construction and the concept of difference that is at the heart of all forms of oppression. Mm. And I think that she sees in Saut's writing the potential for a new kind of way of using language that could create the possibility in the space for a different kind of sociability in which we might be able to do without difference.
1: The other thing that I wanted to ask you to say more about Annabelle in this chapter on vitigue are these, you know, violent <laughs> figures in her work, the figure of the Trojan horse and the idea of, you know, literature as a weapon. Yeah. How that kind of comes together with this resistance to identity, to difference.
0: Viti, as I hope is clear from her different approach to politics in Wales, you know, she, was, she wasn't afraid to, to get caught up in the thick of things. And I think mm-hmm. that she recognized that, you know, revolution is violent. You can't have a kind of widespread change and overturning of a system without some kind of violence. Uh, but I think the, the violence that Vitigue is particularly attuned to is, is conceptual violence. Mm.
1: I mean, that's
0: what the straight mind is, is all about, is pointing out the conceptual violence that patriarchy with its myth of uh, uh, sexual difference has wrought upon uh, the world. And so she uses the language of weapons, of war, essentially, to describe what's at stake in her writing. In her I think that makes a lot of sense. Because mm-hmm. her you know, literature as we know it, it has existed and been produced in service of a regime ordered on difference. And the language that we have to, to make sense of everything, of ourselves, of our experiences, all of that comes to us already tainted by the way difference has worked itself into all parts of our language. And most notably for a boutique that would be gender. And obviously gender is felt much more strongly in French uh, in many ways than it is in English. And, mm. you know, there's a, there's a moment in the introduction to one of her works to think it is to the lesbian body, the English um, edition, where she says, you know, language does violence to me, so I must do violence to it. Mm. So I think that if you, you do see a lot of, of violent kind of metaphors and language uh, on VT's end, it is because for her, what's at stake is the ordering of the world. Mm-hmm. it what's at stake is is what revolution uh, should be working toward, and there's no way that can happen civilly or frictionlessly. It involves breaking down the language that we have to create a different kind of language in instead.
1: The other question I wanted to ask you about this chapter on vt. Annabelle, is something that comes up throughout the book, but really stood out for me in this chapter, which is your engagement with this question of the material and the status of the the material and the real. Mm-hmm. Um, could you say a little bit more about that? And I think that VT
0: articulates in her theoretical work um, and enacts in her literary work, and I think Garret and, and Musaoud do this as well. A very sort of different take on the opposition that's kind of come into focus recently between i guess representation and the real or discourse and the mat- and, and matter mm-hmm. because f- what vittgenstein insists on and uh, what what i think all the writers kind of participate in is a sense that language is not the same thing as discourse that language is not always already representation but that it too is real and it too is material
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and that often in talking about language we're really talking about discourse we're talking about language that has already been kind of sedimented through social use into meaning certain things and doing certain things and and that's where you get um the kinds of bad uses of language, I guess, of of building up concepts like identity and difference and gender and all that stuff that Viti, Xarot, and Gaeta are are writing against. And the Vity's insight is, you know, if you kind of power wash, and this is my language, not hers, (laughs) if you find a way to get all that stuff off Mm. and get to the raw raw material underneath,
1: you can rework it. So in the third chapter, Annabelle, you take on Gaeta. Yes. No subject here. Uh, I kind of want to start with that. Why is this chapter called "No Subject Here"?
0: Well, I mean, Gaeta is a very interesting writer. When I say no subject here, I'm in some sense referring to the sorts the, the sorts of moves that she makes um, in her novel un Jour, which won the Prix Médicis back in 2000. Oh, I'm so bad at dates. Uh, I think it was either 2001 or 2002. I don't remember. And it is essentially a critique of autofiction. So autofiction, being you know very kind of popular, I'd say mode of of literary production in French literature, uh, which has, I think peaked, I would say it peaked in the 90s and has continued throughout today you know, with authors such as Annie Arnaud, Christine Mangot, who's known as the queen of autofiction. But you know, these are all writers who kind of like to play with the sorts of distinction between biography and, in fact, that you, you were alluding to earlier, to kind of blur that line between truth and fiction Mm-hmm. using their lived lives to do so and turn themselves into fiction while still delivering narratives that are to a large extent autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Anna Gareta intervenes with Jour, and it reads so much like an auto fiction. And if you know Gareta, you 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 can tell that things are grounded in quote unquote facts, that things have really happened. And yet she does this thing where she says uh, addresses her reader very explicitly using the, the informal chu, that that's the voice that the uh, pronoun that the, the novel is written in. She insists that there is no subject anywhere in, uh, in any narration, that it's all a fiction and she delivers the promise of these kind of true-to-life vignettes And, you know, she makes a promise to the reader at the beginning saying like, oh, you know, I've done this completely from memory, but as honest as possible. And at the end, she says, I lied. (laughs) One of these vignettes that I have delivered to you, uh, and these are all vignettes about uh, women she's either uh, loved or been loved by, is a fiction. And she says, Cherchez la fiction. Mm-hmm. On the on the surface, that's uh, you know, of course, like look for the the one vignette that's fictional as opposed to the true ones. But I think that you know we should take Garreta at her word and say you know look for fiction, mm-hmm. not this fixation with with a subject. And so she mm-hmm. uses the form of of autofiction, which is invested in the subject, to completely destroy it from inside.
1: In this chapter, you also explore the ways that. Gareta's inclusion in a literary category or grouping kind of recalls Sarot's containment and non containment in the new novel as a mm-hmm. movement. So can you tell us a little bit about Gareta's movement and how she does and doesn't fit.
0: I mean, I think that a lot of people who are familiar with Caretta are familiar with her because of her uh, association with the ULIPO, which stands for Ouvoir de Littérature Potentielle, or the, the, the workroom um, or workshop, um, as it gets translated sometimes, of potential literature. And it's this mm-hmm. weird kind of hodgepodge group of mostly mathematicians and writers who produce literature according to constraints, and so, you know, famous examples of Olympian texts in the past uh, have been, for example, Georges Perec writing his novel La disparition entirely without the letter E which is, you know, quite a feat. <laughs> and Garetha, I think, uh, started to be regarded in this Olympian light, starting from her very first novel, Sphinx, which was published in 1986, which is a love story in which she was able to completely erase the mark of gender when it came to the two protagonists in the love couple. And in conversations I've had with Garetha, it's clear that she is a Lupian insofar as like, she does always like to set up a constraint for herself. But her induction into the Ulipo after the publication of Pazanjou, I think, led to the label kind of overshadowing her own sort of individual and idiosyncratic corpus, because the Ulipo are very kind of media savvy. They're a very public set of cultural figures in France. They're, they're a very kind of successful literary brand. You know, it's, it's so easy to just say Ulipo is constraint. And have that be that, and that's you know true of Garreta's kind of the way she writes. But Garreta's writing is also a lot more than that, and her association with the Ulipo I think has the effect of depoliticizing her writing because, despite the Ulipo writer's own kind of personal political convictions, they are oftentimes treated as kind of a, a band of literary jokesters, of of their games with constraints, uh, producing work that is, well, kind of, that doesn't have a political kind of drive to it. Mm-hmm. So I think because of that, the Ulipian lens makes it difficult to draw out the kind of readings that I perform in Unbecoming Language.
1: In the beginning of our conversation, we talked about why you're not framing all of this and reading these authors and texts through this thing called French theory Mm -hmm. in a kind of stereotypical sense. And you also, in the introduction, and then especially in this chapter, take up the question of, well, I guess the limitations of queer theory as a way to think through the work of all three authors, but especially of Gaeta. You have this Phrase that you use with respect to Greta, queerer than queer.
0: I mean that to, to indicate that I think that Greta is a lot more ambitious in her political goals for, for her writing than queer theory is. Even though queer theory has become synonymous with anti-identitarianism, because you know it's it's in the queer theory that we get some of the most kind of rigorous critiques of the violence of, of identity, the normative ways in which identity is created and imposed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Queer for all of its kind of big goals has in my mind, especially since it's kind of institutionalization in the academy and as a popular and well, thriving site of theoretical intellectual production and reproduction, I think mm. that they're okay with uh, adopting a kind of antagonistic position vis-a-vis normative identity and are not and are, are no longer invested in the utopian project of getting rid of it altogether. Mm. I think that even though I describe Greta in the book as having the most kind of cynical and melancholic writing of of all three of the writers, I think that her writing is still driven by a kind of utopianism, by a belief in what language can do. And so what she accomplishes in her writing is not simply a queering of identity or a blurring of identity or a messing around with identity for the course of the novel, I I think that what happens, or at least my experience of, of reading her, has been that it's impossible for me to have identity be intact at all
1: when I'm reading her. There's just no subject. Throughout our conversation, Annabelle, Unbecoming has been there. Yes, It's come up a few times. It's the title of the book, Unbecoming Language. But I haven't really asked you yet. To speak to the use and the usefulness, I guess, of that term, that way of thinking through the project, in some ways, because I was saving it for this fourth chapter, (laughs) when you talk about all three authors together, and choose unbecoming as, and and the idea of a poetics of unbecoming as the kind of mission for this project. So, yeah, tell us why. I don't even remember
0: anymore how I came to settle upon the term of unbecoming. I I, I really liked the way it spoke both to the process that uh, Sarah Vitig and Garreta's language enacts in, in 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 within their their, their texts of um, working against all the kind of forces that make us as readers who exist in the world become who we are. So I liked the way it was descriptive in that sense, but also the way it evoked just how disturbing that process actually is. And nobody, I think, thinks that unbecoming is fun. I mean, it's not something you would do for fun to kind of try to slough off or erode the, the, the limits that give you a sense of self in your, in your day-to-day life and impart to you this kind of precious sense of identity. And, and I try to acknowledge this in the book, that identity is not just a negative thing, but is perceived and experienced by, by all of us to varying extents as something, as something positive. It enables us to feel that we have an I, and it feels good to have an I in distinction to a you, uh, an I that can also become part of a we. So to unbecome is is something that is very, I think, disruptive, discomforting, disorienting, troubling. It's, I think, it, I think it draws up a lot of negative affects, and um, I was really drawn to unbecoming for doing that double duty.
1: In this fourth chapter you focus on the poetics of these authors. And I guess I want you to say a little bit more about what this means to focus on the poetics, uh, especially for those listeners who maybe aren't trading in or, you know, working with poetics all the time. And then the the point that you make in this chapter, looking at the three of these authors together, that they are calling for an anti-differentialist poetics that isn't about the feminine body in the way that we might understand through French feminism, the work of Sixou Kristeva, Irigaray, but about the body of language.
0: I was actively wanting to provide an explicit alternative to what's become the the dominant French feminist poetics of écriture féminine, as uh, immortalized by Eline Sixou, especially in her landmark essay Le Rire de la Méduse, mm. which was uh, published in 1975. And it, you know, it's really—I mean, it's—it's it's a breathtaking mm. essay. I read it in college, and that's when I was like, "Wow!" Like, I met Sixu once at a at a um, a bookstore in Paris, and I was just so starstruck, and I and I was cowering in the corner, and she saw me across the room after, at, at the end of the event, and she gestured for me to come to her, even though she was surrounded by all these like men of the intelligence. Shut up!
1: That did not happen. <laughs> no,
0: it did happen, and you know i said to her I, I i locked eyes with her and she like looked at me and and uh i started babbling she was like and she 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 asked, she asked me who i was and i was like ah oh, you know i'm my name is Annabelle Kim, and and uh, I, i'm i'm staying abroad and like and, and, and she's like where are your parents from and i'm like oh they they're living in washington and i'm like et six vous êtes mortel vous m'avez ouvert le portail du langage and she just kind of puts her hand on my shoulder and says, Ah, il faut survivre. <laughs> and then in English, after pausing a beat, you must survive. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, <gasps> I don't know what this means. <laughs> I had read Le, Le Ré Re de la Meduse. I had, I had read La Jeune and been completely just, like, blown away. Because it, it is an amazing essay in the in the context of, you know, the, the 70s, when the MLF is happening, when like there's so much kind of social movement and turmoil, and she's, and you know, these consciousness group uh, um, raising groups are happening for the first time, really. And she's saying, you know, it's not just. About our consciousnesses, in some sense, it's like it's we've got to tap into our bodies, and mm-hmm. and in our bodies, it's the potential through our feminine libido to like essentially turn over the entire cosmos, and to free ourselves from this the, all the shackles of this you know culture that has completely repressed femininity since the beginning of of humanity. So you know, it's a very seductive poetics, but what undercoming poetics does takes the language-body relationship and it completely turns it upside down. The difference that matters is not the sexual difference, as in Écriture Féminine, but the difference is the vast difference between the human and language.
1: I can't remember if it's in this chapter or earlier in the book when you make the point that even though the universal comes up here and there, that the politics of that terminology is so fraught in the french context especially but i wonder what the status of i guess i'm going to use the word togetherness is in this anti-identitarian set of forms and expressions so that is to say like as examples what's the possibility or the meaning of love or solidarity if identity and difference are not What do we do? How does politics what does it rest on in terms of togetherness? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's such a good question.
0: And I think the short answer is that there isn't really (laughs) really the possibility for for that kind of togetherness or human solidarity in the kinds of encounters with language that my writers offer. So much of our intersubjective sort of ideals of love, solidarity, political kind of togetherness, um, they take the form of relation between subjectivities that have subjecthood, that are well delineated, that, that are contained within identities. Whereas if you take this the erosion figure of a universe without contours to be what our subjectivity is, well, for controlists, like what what would an intersubjective uh, encounter even look or feel like? It would all be very nebulous. I think is the answer, but not. But that's not to say that there isn't a way in which unbecoming language doesn't open up possibilities for different kinds of soci- sociality. I, I think it does, but it depends on the fact that the text is not all that there is. After reading my author's texts, I'm hoping that it's impossible to return to life as normal without being able to see all of the seams and the stitching and the work that goes into making us the seemingly kind of effortless or constant natural identities that we are. And that creates the possibility for at least changing on some level the operating premises for our social relations.
1: So the way you're talking about all of this now and the way you write about these authors and their work, maybe it's sort of an obvious question to ask you after everything you've said, but you know, how much you identify isn't the right, it's certainly not the right word, but how much you see the project here as an analysis of the work, the political and textual work of these authors, and how much of it for you, points to promise in terms of the legacies of this work, or you know, you just bringing up these kinds of contemporary examples and a kind of hopefulness, hearing a kind of hopefulness in some of the things that you just said. Um, how much you see the work of these authors as a way forward is that the right way to ask that question? Yeah, yeah. and identify with it as a project. Yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, what
0: these authors did for me is that they changed me. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, I was very much in the camp of, you know, vive la différence. And then I read them, really read them. And I couldn't believe in difference anymore. Yeah. I didn't want to live investing in difference anymore. And that has completely changed my, my sense of political possibility. It's, it's, and I think I share with Fatigue a kind of utopian vision of social order that might be able to do without these things. Because everything seems impossible uh, and preposterous until it changes. You know, I mean, yeah. think about how, think, think of, to use a completely banal uh, example. Think about like the uproar anytime Twitter or any of the social media platforms does not update, and everyone's like, "Oh, I hate the new Twitter!" Oh. <laughs> you know, and then and then you adapt, and then they'll put out the new update, and they'll be like, "Oh, I miss the old Twitter, which was a new Twitter." But I mean, we're so we're so easily hacked in that sense, the human psyche. So I think that what I what, what I really identify with in uh, or what I share with my writers is that ambition, because when they write, they're writing something so big. They're writing subjectivity without subjecthood, and I think that ambition is and, and that utopianism is something that does offer some kind of. Not solidarity, perhaps, in the, in the usual sense of, of intersubject relation and in, in, in the usual kind of in dynamics that we're used to, filial, romantic, fraternal, whatever. But I think it preserves political drive hmm. by giving an unobstructed and clear view of a horizon that we shouldn't lose sight of, even as things just become worse and worse around us even if it's just for a little while, we're able to exist otherwise. We're able to still be human and not have to operate according to the categories that difference gives us. And that intermittence, for me, it's enough.
1: Well, Annabelle, where has your work taken you uh, since this project?
0: So I am now working on uh, a second book, uh, and it's tentatively entitled Cacophonie, the excremental canon, getting at the question of, you know, why is there so much shit in, in the French canon? And particularly the 20th and 21st century literary canon, and obviously for the 21st century, it's a canon information, but I w- I've just been kind of really plagued by how much fecal matter is everywhere in the works that have been deemed to matter, and to me, I mean, it, it surely can't be an accident or just an incidental thing. It, it it seems motivated, and I want to get to the bottom of what it's doing uh, in the mm-hmm. canon. So, uh, if you know, in unbecoming language, I was using Sarod, Wittig and Garreta to use. To theorize a feminist poetics that is not a creature feminine. In cacophony, what I am responding to is the way psychoanalysis is the only theory that we have of focality, mm. as far as I know of. It's the only discourse that takes it seriously. And I'm saying, well, here we have this rich canon of texts, and I'm looking at authors like uh, Céline, Beckett, Duras, Romain Gary. Mm. And still Gaëta, she, she makes it in there still, uh, like Sartre, Jeunet, and, um, you know, I'm saying we've got all this literature that's full of it, and I'm surely must be theorizing it. So if we listen to this literature, what kind of a theory and theorization of, of, of the fecal do we get? And my intuition is that if I trace that fecal path, <laughs> that it will also shed a lot of light on questions of literature itself. Mm.
1: So that's where I am. Well, that sounds amazing. And I want to hear more about it. Annabelle, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. Thank you,
0: Roxanne, for, for reading me, for, for listening to me, for, for engaging with me. It's, it's, it's
1: been a real pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.